Okay, thank you for everyone for joining us tonight. So we have a really cool show uh, to, to kind of present tonight. Um, we have a, a huge group, a big round table to talk about actually the RO APM. Um, so uh, I'm gonna start out just by introducing myself and then we'll kind of have everyone go around. Um, so I am uh, Matt Spraker. I'm a, a, one of the accelerators. I'll be serving as the host for uh, tonight's show. Um, and then we can just go over to Simul. Uh, Simul Parikh at MultiCare, medical director there. I am one of the accelerators as well, and thanks for coming. I'm Anna Lauschus. I'm a radiation oncologist um, based in Green Bay, Wisconsin, one of the accelerators as well, and really excited for this show. Maybe we can go to our guests, uh, starting with Connie. Thanks, Matt. Uh, my name is Connie Mance. I'm a radiation oncologist uh, based in Florida. I work for a company named Genesis Care and serve as its chief policy officer, and I also uh, serve Astro as um, as its chair of health policy. Okay, and join. Hi, I'm Join Liu. I'm a radiation oncologist in Eureka, California, which is uh, in a rural part of the Pacific Northwest. Um, I uh, am a, the, the incoming new community practice physician for Astro's nominating committee. So, further adding a, a voice to community practices in radiation oncology. Thank you, and Dave. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. I'm Dave Adler. I'm the Vice President of Advocacy for ASTRO, the American Society for Radiation Oncology. been at ASTRO for about 15 years, and uh, there I oversee all of ASTRO's legislative and regulatory work. Okay, and Anne? Hi, great to be with everybody. Um, I'm Anne Hubbard. I'm ASTRO's Director of Health Policy. I've been with ASTRO since 2014, and I handle all things health policy, including payment reform which is our topic du jour. And last but not least, uh, Tomas. Hi, uh, I'm Tomas Dvorak. Thank you for the uh, invite for the podcast. I'm a radiation oncologist in Orlando uh, at Orlando Health, which is a relatively large size community uh, practice. Thanks. So thanks everyone for introducing yourself. We have really kind of like an all-star cast for tonight's uh, show to, to talk about this really important issue. Um, we, I do want to kind of explicitly say after our introductions that the goal of tonight is really to have kind of like a casual uh, just sort of conversation about, about the ROAPM and the number of issues that we'll talk about. Um, it's probably worth saying that we all work for a mix of academic and community centers, and some people work for ASTRO, and none of this really represents any kind of formal opinion of any of our employers, so it's really just for the goal of kind of exploring this issue and, and talking about some of the some of the aspects of the policy. So um, I think we can we can dive in. Um, so when we had our uh, prep meeting, one of the things that I thought was really, really nice and, and, and fun to talk about was actually hearing about the history of, of RO payer policy. Um, because uh, I personally was not aware kind of how we got to where we are today with the RO APM. And, and I guess I can ask, uh, you know, uh, Connie, you kind of shared sort of like an oral history with us about about how this sort of came to be and why where we are in 2021 and others can certainly dive in and add to it, but I thought it was very informative and it's a nice kind of way to set the stage for this discussion. Sure, man. No, and you know, one um, um, caveat before I start is that um, this is a poorly documented history and I don't have complete visibility to all the pertinent events uh, that have happened over the last 15 years, you know, but I've had some participation in a few, you know, key events and happy to, to relate those. Radiation therapy benefits management started with uh, a company that has since uh, become um, a company named Evacor, which uh, which most of us in radiation oncology have 
uh, familiarity. And it was a company that started more than 20 years ago uh, by a group of radiologists based in New York, uh, interested in making their uh, clinical oversight uh, consultancy available to local health plans as it has to do with reviewing the appropriateness of ordering certain diagnostic imaging studies. And, um, and there was you know, a huge vacuum um, in the insurance world at the time, and, and insurance companies were certainly aware of utilization of radiology services being perhaps in excess. In any event, they saw that the price tag for these services was going up year over year and were desperate for some help. And so contracted, uh, a few regional players did at the time, with this group of radiologists to provide these services. And over the last uh, 20 years or so, uh, the company became uh, more corporate and professional and uh, the diagnostic radiologists were shuttled out and, um, and professional managers were brought in. Uh, and um, since uh, diagnostic imaging um, uh, and looking for opportunities to expand uh, utilization management services, the company began to look at radiation therapy, which was uh, to some a natural extension, and began to apply its methods of, of case review to radiation therapy services. Um, since that time, other companies um, recognized an opportunity and began to form and, and, and offer services uh, similar to, to Evacor. Uh, Med Solutions was one that uh, has since been acquired by, Medi by Evacor. Uh, Health Help uh, is a company that uh, also came to be around that time and have since been majority acquired by Humana. And, um, and what's common among them is that all of their utilization management programs uh, have evolved from diagnostic imaging. And those decisions are largely binary, meaning that um, uh, uh, there's a request for a CT scan or an MRI and there's a very simple rubric that's followed by the case manager to make a yes or no decision on an authorization. And that same template of decision-making has since been applied to radiation oncology, which we recognize is um, much more nuanced and more complicated in its considerations for what might constitute an appropriate technology for treatment, number of fractions for treatment, and so on. And as a result, um, we began to see uh, problems with that system being applied to our services. And it's a problem that at least um, uh, um, in, in my prior role as a chief medical officer for 21st century oncology, I began to recognize about uh, 15 years ago. And, um, and we began at that time uh, to engage with the insurance companies directly to seek alternative methods of claims adjudication, meaning that instead of having to go through prior authorization procedures that were sometimes uh, wrong and certainly were inefficient in almost all cases, that we settle on a different methodology of determination of value for our services and payment for it. And um, many of the alternative payment model discussion that we may have tonight came from a lot of those initial efforts. It's it's like it's it's sometimes hard to see how there's a lot of interplay between like you know because we're because the ROAPM is not a, is not a private policy right so it's not a policy that that only applies to private insurances is actually a Medicare policy. Um, I know that they kind of give and take from each other the private payers and the, and the government payer. Um, but is that so? Is this something that was kind of going on in all the fields in 20 years or, or over the last 20 years? Or are we really is radiation and radiology kind of like the first kind of 
the first time that we started to see this. I mean, we have colleagues that are outside of those two fields that complain about prior authorization as well now in 2021, right? Radiation oncology and diagnostic radiology and interventional radiology, uh, to include them as well, were among the first fields in medicine for which benefits were sought to be managed in this manner. And we have certain unique features about what we do uh, that allows for that type of management, that uh, we have um, similar sets of services with wide disparities in reimbursement. You know, so when we talk about radiation therapy, for example, uh, the treatment can extend anywhere from you know, a simple you know, parallel opposed portal uh, set of fields, uh, fairly simple um, geometries without blocking, to intensity modulated radiation therapy fields, to stereotactic body radiation therapy, and everything else in between. And it's a huge bandwidth of cost that the payer sees from one end to the other. And it's not clear to the payer uh, which method of treatment uh, within this uh, broad bandwidth of cost is going to be most appropriate for the patient. Diagnostic imaging um, faces the same unique challenge for the payer in that there's plain x-ray, CT scanning, um, you know, bone scanning, MRI, PET imaging, and so forth. And for a given condition, um, it's not clear to the payer which study might be most appropriate. And seeing a, a wide distribution of utilization of these different types of services and the costs related to them, payers wonder if there's an opportunity to press down on this variation and to try to save some costs for themselves and and for their beneficiaries and for the employer groups that fund many of these commercial health plans. And so I think for those reasons, we've been able to see that there's been a tremendous amount of attention given to radiation therapy and, and, and diagnostic imaging and a few other fields uh, by payers and their contracted benefits managers. Uh, we don't see that same degree of attention given to, for example, dermatology, which is also a meaningful expense in the Medicare program and and for commercial insurers, in that um, their services don't have such a broad spectrum of choices and cost. And um, given uh, the urge to work on the simplest problems, or at least what's perceived to be a simple problem first, insurance companies and benefits managers will turn their attention to something like us, uh, where they think that they have a solution for this problem of variation of cost. And it's interesting that, that Dr. Mance kind of starts the story, the oral history of, of the uh, alternative payment model on the private payer side. Because, uh, and while I agree with everything he said, I actually would would start it uh, on the Medicare side. Um, and maybe it's more recent, you know, maybe it's two sides of the same coin. But when I think about how we ended up here, I draw the line straight from IMRT growth um, in the in the mid two thousands and the scrutiny of that from the Medicare program um, that I think ultimately led us here today. I mean, I think if folks remember back from 2009 in particular, again in 2012 and several other years, we were constantly, Medicare was constantly looking to, to clamp down on the, essentially the price of IMRT, utilization of IMRT, concerns about the equipment costs, concerns about the amount of time in, in the treatment. And, you know, I think there were a lot of radiation oncology specific factors that led us to the APM. Um, you know, certainly benefits management uh, was, was coming on the scene. 
Uh, I think also the uh, growing clinical evidence around hyperfractionation. Um, but I, I think a lot of it was what we were facing on the Medicare payment side. And at the same time, you saw kind of on the macro po health policy environment, you saw a drive towards value-based care, um, wanting to stop paying for volumes and start paying for, for quality and, and outcomes. And you saw that really come to be in 2015 with the, the legislation that repealed the sustainable growth rate formula and ultimately uh, left us with, with MACRA uh, that we all know and love, the Medicare Access and, and CHIP Reauthorization Act. Sorry, I speak in acronyms, so feel free to just slap me around when I, when I do it. No, no, um, I, should, I should quickly say that I think that there's, we're, there's going to be areas of this that are out of scope, right? Like we can't cover yeah. all of health policy yeah. in a single podcast. So, so I think we're going to have to like, you know, uh, I think people will have to do a little bit of reading and we'll try to give people materials about about some of these things. So I think you can kind of assume that they know what you don't know about macro and stuff like that. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, so basically you had this kind of intersection of these radiation oncology reasons that led to the APM. And you also had the kind of macro environment moving us to the APM and they, they really coincided in 2015 with the PAMPA legislation where, you know, this is shorthand, but essentially Congress said, we will freeze your payments and, and stop these cuts and stop them for a few years out. But sort of in exchange, you need to move to an alternative payment model for radiation oncology. Now, I was just going to add that at the same time, you know, CMMI was rolling out the oncology care model. And so, you know, the other kind of driving force here was gosh, there's this oncology care model. It's a six-month episode of care. It's a total cost of care model. So it includes RT services when, when they're delivered within that six-month episode. And, you know, if you think about it, it's that particular model puts the medical oncologist in the driver's seat. And so if you're, you know, a radiation oncologist and, you know, radiation oncology is referral-based and the medical oncologist is concerned about meeting a target rate, then, you know, gee, is there potentially that disincentive to make that referral to radiation oncology that was kind of a concern too that we um, first recognized when the oncology care model was rolled out. So I'd say it's it's really kind of three-pronged. It's private payers, it's it's Medicare um, transformation due to, you know, the decision to get away from the Sustainable Growth Act and the decision to move to MAC, which, MACRA, which then in turn um, resulted in things like the oncology care model. And if I could make a, a follow-up comment on that, uh, we have looked at the oncology care model as a hospital system, you know, whenever it came out five or six years ago, maybe more at this point, and it doesn't impact just the private practices, you know, where the radiation oncology is maybe separate from the medical oncology group, but it also impacted, obviously, integrated practices. And as a hospital system, we ultimately decided that we were going to lose money on it because even though our medical oncologists were part of our employee practice, right, it would in fact impact the radiation oncology services as well for the whole group, right? So this was really structured purely or mostly entirely to benefit the freestanding medical oncologists. Right. So I just wanted to add that there, we do have a history of experimenting with these models before. Some of you may recall that United Healthcare and MD Anderson teamed up in 2014 to come up with an alternative payment model for head and neck cancers. Uh, they had done a preliminary study. They saw it was feasible after, after one year. So their goal was to enroll 150 patients into this prospective bundled payment model. They only ended up enrolling 88 patients. They were able to save money, but in the end, they had to end the program because 
the fee-for-service system is so entrenched that it really didn't allow for flexibility to uh, support an alternative payment system. So uh, it, it was tried, and, I, and it makes me wonder if uh, uh, you know payers like Medicare consulted with some of the people that had experimented with this one site before, just to get some lessons learned before moving ahead. Yeah, and that's that's actually like a really a really good point, and I feel like something that it's sort of um, I, I sort of like one big overarching thing I kind of keep thinking when I'm reading all the materials that that you all are putting out and all of your articles is just like how. Um, you have to wonder if if it's. I mean, it's 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 probably worth explicitly saying that it's a huge challenge to find a payment model that captures and works for all of the different ways that people practice across this country and and kind of challenges that they face. Right. Um, uh, what, what, you know, that real real quick, it's a it's a great point, and it's something we struggled with, and and we're very purposeful about in our efforts to develop an APM for radiation oncology. We formed this payment reform work group that still exists today, and and you know, used for a lot of uh, guidance and information, and we really tried to to match that heterogeneity that you talked about. We tried to have you know big hospital systems small practices, um, you know, Dr. Mance was on that, um, the U.S. Oncology, bunch of different groups to try and create as, as diverse a work group, geographically diverse as, as well, uh, to um, because we recognized it was going to have to be something that, that worked for everyone. Right. And I would argue that, you know, one of the, the positive things about episode-based payment, if, you know, crafted appropriately, it recognizes that heterogeneity and allows that to happen because there's, you know, there's no right or wrong, you know, way to do things, but it would recognize that, you know, different practices are going to do things a little bit differently as long as it's guideline important care and the pricing is set appropriately, you know, episode pays payments may in fact be a, a good thing to, to recognize that. I want to just clarify something. If, if, we're in an APM, say we're in a zip code that's an a, uh, selected for APM, and we're already cost effective, and the guys next door are in the same APM, and they're cost ineffective. At the inception, will we be sa- paid the same case rate? So you won't be paid your same case rate because your historical data points are going to be different. And because the historical data points are different, you're going to get different case rates for each of the disease sites. So it feels like someone who is already cost effective is somewhat punished and someone who's cost effective is not really punished very much. So I would agree. There's a component in the payment methodology called the blend. And basically what the agency is trying to do with this blend is establish a um, pathway in which to bring what they deem inefficient practices closer into the national base rate. And the problem with that is that they're also establishing a blend for those efficient practices that set at 10% of the national base rate and 90% of your historical. Well, if you're already very efficient, then that blend could in fact negatively impact your efficient practice. And so at the outset, you're right, those practices that are deemed inefficient um, may be okay for a little bit, but in the out years, that blend goes from 90% of your historical and 10% of the national to 30% of the national base rate and 70% of your historical. So over time, you're getting closer and closer to that average. 
But at the outset, you run the risk of potentially jeopardizing those efficient practices from participating in the model successfully. So, I mean, not not to simplify it too much, but, you know, if my two children, like one behaves very well and one behaves very poorly, you know, it, it seems somewhat unfair if that goal is to have good behavior to punish one less severely than the other, even though they've been the ones that have been acting up. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And it's a frustration that we have with this payment model is the fact that the agency is, you know, creating a a, a payment policy that has the, the consequence of um, punishing those practices that are already very efficient and, um, you know, um, have been able to, to keep costs down. The other challenge with this, of course, is that it also doesn't recognize those situations in um, some practices where they may have um, you know, more expensive modalities of treatment that may be appropriately applied to cancer patients. And so by using, you know, greater forms of, of more expensive, you know, treatment, um, there's also punishment. Um, it's purely a payment cut. The way the agency has developed this payment methodology is that there's so much generalization that they've just created a series of payment cuts for, for radiation oncology. Yeah. And so, from an administrative level, like I'm doing more administrative work now in my position, and we are having a really hard time quantifying work um, because there is benefits to the APM where you're treating, for example, you can call it like cures, right? You're 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 paying for cures or paying for treatments rather than individual fractions of treatment. Right. But the majority of hospitals structure is that you're paid by our view. So I had a interesting email with my administrator about this and we we're asking for some help because we are busier than we ever were. But since I've been there, we've become much more cost effective. So to the people counting the beans, uh, well, maybe you guys don't need another doctor, even though you're seeing 30% more consults than you were before. Um, and you know, in, if you have practices near each other, but are outside of the APM, it's going to be kind of challenging to recruit. Like, how are we going to pay, you know, the doctors in one practice versus the others fairly. And I feel like if it's just being imposed rather than doing it in concert with the hospitals, we're going to have a really tough time for 30, you know, for the for the people that are selected for the model. Um, and those are, you know, those are kind of things that are coming up for me. Yeah, you, you actually, you're bringing up something that I think is a really important point that kind of permeates this entire discussion is that something I've noticed with all of these models is that, um, you know, these are models that are coming down from the top, whatever that is, if it's, you know, a private payer or government. Um, but there's very little, there's like no support to absorb the work load of implementing a new model. And, and like we've kind of talked about all these different ways that it greatly affects what you're actually doing on the ground. And, and we'll talk a little bit about this more. I actually have like, I have it written out on the, on the outline as something that we'll talk about, but it's, it's just surprising to me because um, I think that, you know, you, you, everyone would probably agree that cancer care is a resource that like you know, Americans should have access to just in general. I mean, we're not going to talk about access issues today, but like that, you know, it's something that we all want our citizens to have. So like you'd think that there would be support from 
from everyone to to help you know practices absorb these changes. Um, um, yeah. Before before we get to that though, I do want to just touch on two other things in this kind of section here about about the history of the policy. So so two questions that I would have is are are we being picked on because it sort of feels a little bit like we are as a field, right? And and do we feel like if that's the case, is is any of that coming from the fact that we are a very small field? And maybe we don't have as prominent a position in people's minds as oncologists, as say medical oncologists do. Um, and, and so like, I think we talked, I don't know if it was said explicitly, there was some discussion at some point that maybe like radiation would just be rolled into the OCM, the oncology care model, which is, which is like not a good idea. Um, but to even like consider that is just sort of speaks a little bit to how we're viewed. The, the second question I guess I would have, um, and I thought when we were talking before, uh, Tomas, you had a really nice answer for this is like, why, why do we need to do this at all? Like, why can't we just like have fee for service? I mean, it worked out great for, you know, worked out great for years. So like, why, why do we have to change now? You know, so, so maybe we can just start with the first one is for the people that are interacting with the policymakers, do you feel like we are treated differently than other fields? So it was, uh, and I'll start, um, it was purposeful that we sought to develop an APM for radiation oncology. We totally saw the handwriting that was on the wall with severe payment cuts uh, under fee-for-service. This year is actually a good example of uh, what happens in the fee-for-service and the Medicare physician fee schedule environment with just big, big cuts that really threaten access to care, uh, particularly for community-based centers. I mean, if these cuts this year go, go through, uh, those centers under, are under the fee schedule, we're down 25% over the last 10 years. That's just unsustainable. And that could actually get worse. So we understand that that payment threat is real. Um, we understood the way that CMS wanted to redesign the IMRT codes would have been a further cut. Uh, that was coming down the pike and mentioned the OCM. We saw trouble on the hop side as well uh, with the packaging of services into um, uh, CAPCs that, that threatened payment. So we had all these um, payment threats on the one hand, and we also understood what was happening with hyperfractionation and how that represented such a disruption to the radiation oncology business model. And that's why at Astro, wow, almost 10 years ago now, we put this work group together uh, to try and define an alternative payment model for us before it was defined or hoisted upon us. Now, we actually feel like we did a very good job in developing that model. Um, and what we put forward, we were proud of. Uh, unfortunately, it has been corrupted and marred by the layering of payment cuts on top of it. The, the structure there of, of the RO model is sound and very similar to what we proposed. The base rates could work, um, but not with cuts piled on top of it, not with the onerous, uh, burdensome of, of collecting data, reporting data. Um, this, uh, the, the cost of participating will be extremely high. And so this undermines what is a well-intentioned and, and potentially very strong APM uh, that would really help the specialty. So um, over the last like five to seven years, if we track our spending, it's actually gone down. And out of all oncologic specialties, I think we may be the only one that have had um, not just a bending of the cost curve, but like actual decrease in costs per, per provider. Um, why, why select someone who's on the right track? 
so costs have gone down on the fee schedule side, um, and that's a, a mix of the payment rates declining as well as the utilization. They've actually gone up on the hospital outpatient side, the technical side, um, pretty significantly. Overall, you know, we're not we're not in the realm of drug price increases, of yeah. course, or anything like that. I'd say steady more than than up. Um, but you know, your your point still stands. Kind of why us? And and I think it it speaks to to what I said previously. We saw great threats um, uh, coming down the line, and we tried, and we are still trying to get out in, in front of them. And it's, it's actually a good point to, to bring, you know, I, I do want to have um, uh, Tomas kind of speak about, about kind of the societal benefit of, of doing an APM in general, because I think it's a good point. But before we get to that, I just want to point out, because we're kind of hovering around this. So so we, we do a lot of tweeting. I think a lot of people here um, do that. And, and we talk similar, or he kind of, I think he coined the term of, of sock puppets or these like anonymous accounts that, that kind of come in and are, they generally say negative things. I actually like a couple of them. I think they make really good points, but I want to, I want, I do want to bring up two points that, that are often talked about. Um, one is we've kind of mentioned already is that we are a drop in the bucket, right? Like, so that there's this common fact that's shared that like Herceptin alone is like more than the entire field of radiation oncology. It provides a very clear, important benefit for patients. So I think it's hard to have that argument, but, but like, I think, one thing that, that I've noticed is that um, it almost seems like these days we're not even talking about the same things anymore um, in terms of benefit and cost. Um, when I talk to my colleagues that are outside of radiation oncology. So uh, I'm going to paraphrase her, but Sue Yang made a really nice uh, point on one of these like v- uh, virtual professor network things videos where we, I think as a field, we've been really good stewards of our, of our trials. We've, we've picked meaningful endpoints that are, that are not surrogates and, and we have good trials that show clear benefit. There's been a slide uh, towards um, not doing that in, in drug development, right? So, so we have like, you know, all these drugs getting approved and, and kind of like on, on things that we are unclear if there's benefit. There are certainly very vocal medical oncologists that do not like this. And I, and I love those, those people and being very vocal about that, but does, does this ever come up? I mean, I think like, can you explain to us kind of when you talk to policymakers, why um, you shared it with us before, but why it's not so effective to walk in and kind of point to, you know, osimertinib or Herceptin or whatever, and just be like, look, like this is a huge problem. Like fix that, ignore us, let us do our thing. That, that's not an option. To some extent, first of all, it is a very powerful talking point. And I think the first words out of my mouth and, and Ann's mouth and anybody on my team's mouth, when we talk to, to policymakers is what, what good bang for the buck uh, Medicare and, and payers get for, for radiation oncology. It really is um, high value. And all, another reason why we thought we, we could be successful under an alternative payment model uh, environment. You know, obviously there's so much debate, um, you know, around drug pricing and, you know, the in, in politics, the money around it is just astronomical and two sides just dug in. And, and, you know, very difficult to see um, how this is going to, to play out. Yeah, and just to build on Dave's comments, I think a, a, a huge point can be made in terms of drug pricing uh, compared to E&M uh, uh, services for physicians. You know, we're always facing the issue of budget neutrality. So any increases in reimbursement for one specialty, particularly when you want to support primary care, come at the cost of, of other specialty services. And yet pharmaceutical companies don't face budget neutrality. CMS just writes them a blank check for whatever they want. 
So yeah, I mean, so that's that's pretty frustrating. I mean, so I guess the the take home is we are all equally frustrated with this, um, and it, and it's been a challenge. But it doesn't sound like you could really walk in and kind of point to that as something else that they should work on, as opposed to radiation oncology. It's not uh, like you know we can scream about it all we want on Twitter, but it's not going to actually like fix the problem with policymakers, right? The 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 other thing that we should just mention, um, I know that this is also maybe a little out of scope, but everyone always um, it's a very popular talking point lately that the uh, PPS exempt program, right? So this is something that is not related to the ROAPM uh, except for one small point um, is actually more expensive than the proposed savings for the ROAPM. And whether that's true or not, that's giving people talk a lot about. And just so people are familiar, the PPS exempt program is is basically an old program that has selected a number, uh, a small number of institutions that are you know innovative and big cancer centers that have been deemed to have higher costs because of all the innovation and research and everything that they do. Um, please correct me if I'm if I'm paraphrasing this wrong. Um, and because of that, they are sort of uh, exempt exempt from a lot of things. But specifically, one thing they're exempt from is the ROAPM, right? And and it is a little surprising to me because we, this we'll get back in more detail to the nuts and bolts here. But you you know these are. The, as, as Simmel pointed out, these are challenges for practices to accept, right? I mean, it's just, it's a big burden on them. So if you're going to pick people to accept a big burden, you, you might pick like the most big, wealthy, well-resourced institutions and not the small ones that are already like on raised within margins and struggling to function to begin with. So I don't know if there's anything to say about that. Um, I, we did talk about it in our in our prep that it's actually a different program, right? So you, it's not even the same people that you're talking to. Uh, maybe you can expand on that a little bit. Yeah, I'd be happy to jump in. I mean, basically, those PBS-exempt hospitals are part of a separate Medicare demonstration program, just like the Maryland all-payer system, just for like Vermont system. Um, those exemptions are in place because those institutions in either those states or that have been identified as part of those programs are in separate Medicare demonstration programs. And so, you know, I can appreciate the fact that, you know, there's concern around the um, the burden associated particip- with regard to participating in the RO model in comparison to say those programs, but I think it's not so much a why aren't they in you know we're in and this is a struggle. It's making sure that we're reducing the burden for those practices that are participating in the RO model, um, and if you know we kind of have to set aside those demonstration programs because they're they're really separate and distinct. That makes sense. I mean, I think you know it's. You know, we get to this sort of the last thing that I thought would be worth saying is, is you know, Tomas, you had a really nice kind of discussion about um, in our prep call kind of about how the ROAPM is actually good in the long term. I don't know if you want to expand on that a little bit or if you remember what you said, but, but you kind of you, you sort of expanded a little bit about about that, um, about how we think it's actually an ultimate good for, for kind of our society. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think there is kind of two pieces. One one part is to follow up on what Dave was saying earlier and we talked about in terms of sort of why radiation oncology, right? And I think that's sort of the the bigger point, which is that sort of the U.S. globally, right, it has a problem with spending. I think as we all know, and we can sort of see it in Washington happening live, right? And, you know, the numbers there are, are pretty significant if you actually stop and think about them in terms of just the overall debt, right? You know, $29 trillion and and the annual deficit, meaning you know, the amount of money spent by the government versus the amount of money taken in by the government is, is really pretty dramatic too, right? It's on the order of three trillion or so per year, right? And so the question then becomes, 
you know, how long can that be sustained? And I think that's what the, the politicians are struggling with, you know, in, in DC and on the state level. Right. But, but big part of that spend, you know, is actually Medicare and Medicaid. Right. And, and it accounts for almost 18% at this point of, of that pie. Right. And so the question then becomes, you know, if at some point these dollars do need to be restricted, right? What's the best way to, to limit them? You know, and certainly the Medicare pie is, is, is part of that, you know, like it or not, right? And so I think as a society, sort of to take a big step back, right? I think as a society for us and for our kids and the future, right? We kind of need to be mindful of, of, of those balances. And of course, you know, the question is, well, why us and why not somebody else? You know, and that's where I think where the politics comes comes into play, right? But I think we're sort of stuck with it partly because even though, like we talked about, radiation oncology is a small specialty, the rate of growth, you know, has been relatively large. And, and the rate of growth is one of those things that, that the regulators keep an eye on, right? So it's not necessarily the total number, although part of it, but it's also just the increase of in the line items, right? So, you know, if you look at inflation, let's say over the past 20 years, you know, it's been about 50 some percent over the past 20 years, but, but Medicare costs, right, have gone up more than 100%. So twice the rate of inflation and then hospital services, twice the rate of that. So there's clearly a problem sort of on a societal level, right, in terms of costs. And so I think, I think that's where some of this is coming from. And, and the reality is that we're going to have to live with it, right. And, and as we talked about, you know, the question then becomes, what's the best way to live with it, right. And, and, and I think, that's where potentially starting to dig a little bit into the details of how the model is set up, I think is important because there definitely are some downsides, you know, and as, as Dave was saying, you know, and I think I would give Astro a lot of kudos, honestly, over their work over the past 10 years for, for trying to be, you know, visionary and seeing that this is coming and trying to get ahead of it to protect us as a specialty as best as they could. I think they've done a great job. Um, you know, the practical implementation may be worse than what we had expected. Um, but I think as Anne said, right, at the end of the day, this is a straight up cut, right? They, they have a certain amount of dollars that they're trying to limit from the spend. And the question will then be, well, how are these cuts distributed? You know, and if you, if you look at the details that they have published, there are certainly differences on the professional side, right? with the freestanding radiation oncologist taking a bigger cut and there are differences on the technical side as well right where it turns out actually it's really pretty neutral um, and that somewhat depends on the current patterns of practice right and, and, and so clearly the radiation oncologists that are in the freestanding centers um, are costing right medicare more than let's say the hospital-based or the academic radiation oncologists. And so just from a budget perspective, when they looked at it, right, they said, well, for radiation oncology, we need X and for medical oncology, we're going to need Y and for orthopedic surgery, we're going to need Z. And so, you know, let's just try to take that model and tweak it to get what we need out of it. But I think the plus, and we can certainly talk about that in more detail is that, you know, the fee-for-service model in some ways is onerous in terms of, the pressures required to bill for service, right? And so to bill per fraction when it may not in fact be the right thing for the patients, right? In terms of outcomes and in terms of convenience and all those things. And so I think there certainly are pluses and minuses to implementing this. 
That so one thing I did want to point out is we probably all rally around the fact that I think we all do different things, but I think everyone that uh, is an oncologist probably can understand being a small, lean team that's probably understaffed. So I think that we share that with the Astro Policy team, and then and then and then you have you know people that don't really understand what you do on the ground, like telling you how how it's going to be. So so I think those are you know those are good good points, and, and I guess just to to sort of I guess re- reiterate what you just said, uh, Tomas, is that like it's like this is this is a reality, right? So so we've pointed out these problems. It, you know, no one is saying that these problems don't exist, but they are things that um, that you have to deal with the reality that you have, right? So it's like when you go and you have these discussions, um, they are focused on radiation oncology for better or worse. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about what we might be able to do about that, but but I think that those are important points to kind of take away. I, I personally, I think just you know being kind of a superficial watcher of this space. I didn't really have a good appreciation of that. You think you go and you're, you know, everyone's talking about the whole big picture together. And that's just really not how, how our government works, maybe unfortunately in a way. So um, let, let's actually talk a little bit about implementation uh, of the RAPM. Um, so, so one thing that I think there's been a lot of discussion about is, and, and maybe Anne, you can, you can talk a little bit about this is, is who's participating. Um, we've talked a lot, there's a lot of chatter about random selection, right? And then, and and so my question, I guess, for you is, um, it, it was was there discussion coming from Astro about who is going to participate and were there pitches to maybe have um, people who can take on a burden be the people who participate as opposed to um, a random selection uh, or, or how did that all kind of work out? Yeah. So um, Astro's position had always been for a voluntary model uh, that would allow practices to determine whether or not they wanted to participate. And so um, I'd say early on in conversations with the agency, uh, there was some inkling that there may be interest in something mandatory, but we were constantly pushing back and saying, you know, this really needs to be voluntary, there needs to be an opportunity for practices to determine whether or not they can, you know, financially manage participating, um, manage the the reporting requirements associated with the quality measures. And, um, you know, gosh, CMS, if you wanted to establish something that's mandatory, let's provide practices with a glide path, give them the opportunity to, you know, kind of phase into mandatory participation over time. And um, as you know, now, um, the, the, the agency came out with that proposed rule in uh, July of 2019, and it required mandatory participation of all thir- of 30% of all radiation oncology episodes. And so um, now, we, you know, they've identified 950 practices across the country um, to participate in the model. And um, we're disappointed in that because it basically creates a situation where those practices are locked into participating in a model that we really aren't entirely sure how it's going to work out for them. This model's never been tested. And it would seem that if the agency was um, committing to making a really um, you know, honest shift towards value-based payment, there would be that opportunity to voluntary participate um, to make that kind of phase stepped approach so that you would have the opportunity to make tweaks and revisions along the way. Um, because let's face it, any kind of a shift in payment isn't going to be um, perfectly executed the first time around. And there's going to need to be a, um, an opportunity for revision. So um, I am really concerned that we've got a lot of practices who are required to participate. Um, many of them have reached out to me on a regular basis. They've got lots of questions. They're trying to get ready 
Um, and there are a lot of um, issues that um, the agency still has yet to address. And, um, you know, the implementation date is quickly approaching. So I'm, I'm curious, I'm sorry to sort of cut into the midstream here a little bit, but, but um, you know, Connie talked about the prior experience that they have had in terms of their internal models. Would you be willing to give us a little bit of a flashback and see how that implementation ultimately played out and, and the successes from that? Because I think there's a lot of learnings potentially, right, for some of these implementations for the RIPM itself. No, sure. I, I, I mean, you know, we executed our first agreement with um, a major national commercial payer in 2011 uh, to do an alternative payment model to replace fee-for-service payments that we had been previously receiving with that payer. And it was a national contract and, and, and it affected all of our markets. At the time, uh, you know, you know, you know, pretty good-sized practice. We had uh, about uh, 165 offices scattered in 17 different states. And, and it really gave us an opportunity to test how scalable uh, this idea may be. And we worked with the payer um, very closely uh, with its product and management teams to try to develop a model that we felt that on our side, uh, we were receiving fair payments based on recent historical experience in order to be able to support our costs for providing services to their beneficiaries and for the payer, something that would be uh, facile to adjudicate using their claims management systems, which they weren't going to change for, for us or for anybody. Um, and so um, how we solved those problems over a period of about six or nine months was that we settled on, on the following, that the payments would be structured such that they reflected uh, recent historical payments averaged according to uh, disease type, and, uh, and the distribution of, of technologies and services on a per case basis. That when we looked at our claims data uh, with that payer over the prior three years, uh, we discovered that breast cancer cases on average uh, paid X number of dollars, prostate cancer, Y number of dollars and so forth. And um, we took uh, a small discount off that weight average pricing um, uh, which we felt confident in being able to do because we thought that by uh, simplifying the payment processing and, and, and collection process to receiving just a single payment would take out a lot of cost in the system of managing a set of claims for a given patient that can sometimes number in many dozens of units of service across you know 15 or 20 different CPT codes and and having to work claims that were inappropriately denied and so forth. We thought that you know, all the HR costs that was related to claims management uh, could be tamped down, if not almost completely eliminated through such a system. And so we were happy to offer a discount to the payer. The payer was happy to receive uh, this discount offer because then it can go to its board and get approval for something that was novel like this, like this payment program. And that's how it worked for us. And, um, and there were some you know, operational challenges uh, through fee-for-service claim management systems that we were able to solve pretty simply on both sides, that uh, we created uh, codes that uh, would trigger the payment from the payer, and, 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 and we would recognize it as a bundled payment uh, on the provider side through um, our claim system without getting into all those painful details. Um, 
it, but ultimately it made sense financially for both participants. And uh, furthermore, we agreed with the payer that these payments would be rebased after some period of time uh, that the payer and, and the provider could look back and see how utilization of services may have changed over the prior five years and then rebase these bundled payments. If hypofractionation for breast cancer you know, uh, moved from you know, one or 2% of all cases to 50% of all cases, that downstream pricing of the breast cancer bundle would reflect that change in utilization. And so both sides were um, very satisfied with that arrangement. Uh, we were satisfied in that we were able to adapt to changes in utilization through our cost structure in a very gradual way, instead of having um, uh, a change imposed on us uh, by the payer who would insist on hypofractionation for a certain number of patients um, for a given disease from the onset. And uh, the payer was satisfied in that they were able to adjust their episode pricing according to that utilization change. And so that agreement has remained active for us for the last 10, 11 years. And we've not opened up the agreement, you know, one time since its, uh, since its initial execution. We've turned it year over year. So Medicare was, and, and by the way, we also executed a few other agreements like that with smaller regional payers. We couldn't get interest beyond the exploration stage with United Healthcare and uh, Cigna and many of the Blue Cross uh, Blue Shield plans that we approached, uh, suggesting a similar model. So Medicare looked at that experience at the time uh, that Dave referenced earlier, uh, when uh, MACRA was passed in 2015, and 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 there was sanction given to Medicare and the CMMI to explore alternative payment models for radiation oncology, that the agency had looked at this experience and a few others, but paid a lot of attention to this and how we built the pricing for these bundles and how we developed um, an operation by which claims could be managed efficiently on both ends. And a lot of what we see in the ROAPM took from that experience. Um, and, uh, and, and, and that's what we have at present. Ultimately, and this is to get back to you know points that Anne had made and, and a few others, is that um, on a national scale, if there is an efficient provider and that efficient provider is paid uh, according to whatever awaited national averages of payments for you know, a given condition, um, and that efficient provider is uh, traditionally been paid something less than that national average, and even if that national average is adjusted somewhat for you know, what that individual provider may have cost uh, um, the health insurer, um, that that provider should benefit and see an uplift in, in his or her reimbursement uh, as soon as this APM takes hold. Um, if the inefficient provider uh, who historically had been paid much more than what that national average was uh, would see a decline in his or her reimbursements. And uh, even though there may be some adjustment upward to account for historical trends and payment to that individual, it still would be a cut. And that's how I think some of us had imagined that the ROAPM would function, is that uh, it would reward the efficient provider, uh, it would penalize, but fairly, the inefficient provider and do it in a gradual fashion, stepwise, year over year. Um, so that uh, the efficient provider gains a little bit more every year, the inefficient provider loses a little bit more every year, and gradually both regress toward the mean. 
And any change in utilization as a result of payment being uncoupled from utilization might be reflected in some later term when Medicare would decide to rebase prices for these national bundles. What Medicare did, though, unfortunately, was uh, levy pretty heavy discounts on the technical and professional bundled payments that would render most participants, whether they were inefficient or efficient, losers under this model. And that's been a real bone of contention between us and the agency. We want uh, those discount factors that are applied to these payments to be rolled back to 3% uh, as uh, is uh, required um, uh, by MACRA instead of pushing far ahead of those minimum requirements. And um, with our modeling at least, uh, and at those discount rates, we see a far more equitable distribution of winners and losers that the efficient uh, providers uh, gain a little bit, the inefficient providers lose a little bit, rather than skewing uh, most of the participants to the loser side of the equation. So, so, but, but so, so, symbol. Just, just, uh, got, a, got an applause here from Dave, which is that was very helpful. So, thank you, and, and I think that was nice to hear. But how did we get from what you just described, which, by the way, seems so rational and nice, and and by the way, like we we have not talked at all about how this has the potential to eliminate all of that distress that we all have with the work of getting these things approved. And I'm sure there's distress on the payer side as well. So they must have a whole side where they, you know, they block things or in my opinion, they do. But but anyway, how do we get from that to to what Simmel just described, which is basically the opposite, right? This is because he just kind of shared how, from his point of view, the the proposed ROAPM is, is actually penalizing efficient practices and and not harming the I mean, that's right. I mean, what, yeah, what Simmel referenced is what's um, uh, in the proposed rule at present. And the fact that um, the majority, the large majority of participants are losers under this model is because of these needlessly steep discount factors. And so just to, you know, you know, you know, back up for a moment and talk about MACRI and, and, and how it designates something as an advanced alternative payment model, which is what the SARO model intends to be. So MACRA established a set of criteria for a payment model to be considered an alternative payment model and, and an advanced alternative payment model. And why this is an important goal for us and, uh, and for medicine in general to pursue under Medicare is that uh, alternative payment model participants are eligible under MACRA for a 5% incentive bonus uh, of their Part B payments for participating in the model and uh, would reward and bring the successful participant above par of what his colleagues uh, might be getting paid outside their alternative payment models under fee for service. And so, you know, we imagine that this would be. Um, an opportunity to reward efficient providers and give them a bonus on top of um, 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 creating a system by which they would earn more uh, for being uh, efficient in their provision of services. Um, what MACRA also mandates for an alternative payment model is that a minimum of 3% of Part B payments be subject to risk, meaning that um, um, at a minimum, the participant um, should be willing to lose uh, 3% of uh, payments uh, relative to fee-for-service with the idea that if a good and successful participant could earn back 
5% uh, as an incentive and net out that, uh, that loss on, on the front end and, and net positive on the back end. Um, what this RO model proposed rule instead mandates is a 3.5% um, discount, not uh, putting 3.5% of, of, of collections at risk, but discounting them, trimming them right off the top for professional payments and 4.5% for technical payments. And um, in our opinion, uh, goes well ahead of what MACRA um, is, is requiring for advanced APM participants. And uh, to the extent that uh, it makes most of us as participants losers under, under this model. Um, it's hard to imagine success under such a program. And, um, and in particular for rural facilities and low volume facilities that uh, depend on Medicare uh, beneficiaries for much of their book of business um, and already are dealing with uh, razor thin margins because they just you know don't have uh, a large burden of, of 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 you know commercial PPO types of patients that they're treating and the total number of patients going through the clinic is relatively small. That this would be absolutely lethal to them. Um, it's hard to imagine that they would be able to maintain their operation and and meet its costs um, if they have to face a cut of this magnitude. Um, so therefore, um, and after we've done the math and, and ourselves uh, using the same data that, that Medicare did in order to construct its RO model, we came to the conclusion that these discount factors are unfair and uh, have become a real big point of advocacy um, on our behalf uh, to try to advance a rollback of. And, and what I might add to that is I think, you know, I get a lot of questions, you know, what's what's wrong with these CMS people? Are they evil? They're just out to get it. That's not the case. These are good, hardworking, incredibly smart people. Um, but I think what people lose sight on of is that the model cannot be expanded uh, or extended in length per macro unless they can certify that there are savings under the model. So if it's just break even or doesn't save money, the model goes away and we're back to the fee-for-service problem that we talked about earlier. So we have an interest in the model showing savings or we think the model, as Dr. Mann said, goes too far is it's an excessive level of savings that undermines any benefit uh, you get from the model. And we've gone back and forth so many times with the agency to, to essentially get them to show us their math. So we can understand the assumptions that they are making to calculate this level of savings and why it has to be so excessive so we could provide them with our data and, and kind of have a discussion to figure out what the right level is. Unfortunately, we haven't had that level of transparency with them, which is, which is very frustrating to us. Um, but we continue to make the case that even if, if CMS adopted every single recommendation that, that we've made, particularly on the discount factors, this model still saves money uh, and would be able to be expanded and extended after the five-year period. Uh, I was just going to say one of the things I called for was just elimination of the discount factors totally, because if you truly want to test a model, test it on its own merits. Uh, and, and Connie, I think, I guess you mentioned the agreement that you had with the major payer in uh, with 21st century. You guys didn't have any discount factors, you had a pure payment model. Well, we, we, we did discount uh, our average payments 
Um, I, I'm not at liberty to to to, to disclose sure. exactly but the rate of discount. Rate. But, yeah. but 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 how that discount was negotiated was in a sensible way that uh, we did a cost accounting analysis of how much we have to spend in terms of resource and time uh, to process claims with this payer. And looking at that number, we worked backwards and uh, you know uh, divided it by the total. Uh, set of collections. And that became the percentage discount that we negotiated. We told the payer, you save us this work and expense, we'll give you the money. Right. And, and and that was, you know, that was a done deal. Right. Um, and in exchange, you didn't have to deal with authorization. And, and importantly, it took us out of prior authorization. And, um, and, and I think for, you know, any of us that sees any patients in radiation therapy, uh, in this group, uh, we understand what a daily burden that, that is. Um, and some payers are worse than others. Some benefits managers are much worse than others. And worse you know, to the extent that uh, they are um, disinformed and unfair, depending on the scenario. Um, and, uh, and our patients ultimately have to pay a cost for that. We wanted to get away from that, and we were hoping at that time that we would be able to expand this model and and cut out prior authorization as we did successfully with a few payers and and uh, just negotiate directly with um, with the insurer on on payments for these services. Uh, it would save the insurer money and in that they wouldn't have to pay the per case or the contracted fees for the benefits manager to do this work. Um, and, uh, and, and as I said, you know, we, we made some traction, but then eventually it stopped. And then, you know, that's, what's so, what's so like, so crazy to me and like enraging is that I think everyone would agree that that cost is, is a waste. It's like a total waste, right? The administrative burden that has, has now been kind of put on again, like, I, you know, I would argue that there's probably administrative burden on the other side on the, on the payer side. Right. So if we just uh, agreed together to eliminate that burden, that would save money in its own right. And then we could kind of get to talking about the things that probably matter to patients. I mean, I don't, I don't, I personally do not see any value. Uh, maybe there are niche people or pr providers or practices that are doing really wasteful stuff, but I, I don't think that's, that's the norm, right? So, so this like kind of prior off system that is in place supposedly to improve quality. Um, it just seems like a huge burden and it's kind of lost uh, or at least, I mean, I don't know if there was ever, if it ever really played the role that it was supposed to play, but, but it, it certainly in my, my view does not play what, what, what it, what they say it's doing. Right. And like being sure we're not over. Matt, Matt, I, I think, I think that's maybe from, from your perch at an academic center. And that's why your opinion is like that. I mean, I, it's true. <laughs> I, I've been in the community my entire career and I received treatment summaries from outside practices and you know i you see enough dying people getting 20 fractions for bone mats and you may note that okay maybe they have a point with some of this stuff or um you know it's 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 out there there there's things that are happening <clears throat> i think that maybe what you know as you see more of it you realize that that some of the stuff that they're talking about is not unreasonable. I mean, one thing that Dave and I spoke about a long time ago was I always get in trouble about the HOP rates versus the freestanding rates. And when it was not, you know, it's big difference between the two sites. And Dave says, well, if you look at total costs, you know, the freestanding centers 
still spend more per episode. And that's why, you know, like at the prior, like prior, and that's what was happening. So that's why they separated the rates and they changed the rates. And he can kind of clarify that if I'm getting a little bit off. And so, you know, like it, I think that it's, it's really complicated. And because a lot of the people that are making the decisions are coming from a certain perch, like there's, uh, I, you know, there's an MD Anderson person that's involved with the RO at APM discussion um, at the higher levels. And they're not, you know, they're not going to feel the pain of it. They're also charging much, much more uh, per fraction or per treatment than anyone, any one of us. I mean, it would, it, you know, not to pick on them, but anyone, like if you look at the commercial rates that Sloan, Anderson, and Mayo, you know, University of Washington, that's one of our neighbors, they, they get an extraordinary amount of money for the same thing. And I'm not saying like a thousand more or 5,000 more, we're talking like 50,000 more or a hundred thousand dollars more. And so, you know, it's, it's really complicated. And I, I don't think like we can say like, it's, it, there's both sides. Like this stinks. This plan stinks, I think. But at the same time, we do have a problem of overutilization at, at, with a with a lot of practices, possibly due to the system, possibly due to not enough training, or you know for whatever reason. But it's out there, and I, I don't. I would push back against saying that like everyone's practicing cost effectively. Yeah, and that's fair. And that's fair. And actually, I, I would just kind of point out that I think what's so great about us all doing this is that it, you only kind of know what you see, right? So, I, so, and, I, and I'll admit that I am a very junior radiation oncologist. This is all brand new to me. And, 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 I, and I am at, at a place that's it's on a perch. I really like that, that description. That's, that's a good one. Um, but I think it's, it's, you know, this idea that without prior authorization, that everybody would be like given SBRT to like 95 year old ladies who have six months survival. Like that's just, I just don't buy that. I think that that's not true. Um, and there is data to argue that most people are not getting 20 fractions of palliative radiation. Most people will actually get 10, which I have my own problems with, but that's, but that's actually, you know, that it, I think that what you're seeing, what I've seen that too, is, is not the norm, right? So, so instituting a system across the country that is implementing a huge amount of burden on people just to prevent, a minority of, of abusers, right, is, is, is in my mind, not, not a good way to do it. Um, but, but I think one thing that we should shift to a little bit um, is because it was talked about a couple of times is sort of a threat to rural practices, right? And, and I know that, um, I know, Joy, and you have a lot of thoughts there and a lot of things to say. You had a really nice article, kind of what I liked about it is it actually shared your experience. So we've talked a lot about kind of astro policy experience and, and you know, Connie's experience kind of managing these, these large networks and, and kind of de dealing um, with big volumes of, of payment. But you've had a very different experience, right? Because you are um, you're, you're uh, in a smaller practice. You've had a long history of participating in these programs um, with maybe less resources. And, and I think you, you maybe had a little different take on it. So maybe you could share some thoughts kind of from your perspective. And I'm, I'm very interested just in hearing about uh, perceived threats to rural practices, because I think that's a big uh, there's there's a, a threat to like rural medicine, right? Even outside oncology, right? Right now, uh, even at, you know it's probably amplified in COVID. So, sure, yeah, and I think you know that it especially uh, uh, felt when you're dealing with something experimental, and you you end up looping in rural practices that may serve a very large catchment area. So if these areas are actually threatened in their ability to continue to offer care you're actually affecting a very vulnerable population over a large geographic region. 
Um, my particular practice covers uh, about 150 mile radius around me. The nearest linear accelerator northeast and south of me is uh, three hours away. And then west of me is the Pacific Ocean. So that's it. Uh, we are actually considered the big city for a lot of people that live in the mountains. So to, ex to run an experiment on you know, a practice that serves uh, you know, such a large geographic region um, may not be well advised. You know, it's definitely uh, great. We look at the oncology care model, which was voluntary, you know, to pretty much allow practices that are well-resourced to voluntarily participate uh, that have the administrative breadth and perhaps the geographic um, redundancy of other practices being the region if something goes wrong. Uh, at least patients have another place they can go to that's reasonably close to home. That's not the case for us. Um, if we're gone, that's it. You're you're pretty much uh, forced to go to an area that's uh, uh, going to be a very um, uh, large hardship to travel to. So that just um, so that's that one piece for the rural uh, area. Um, you know, in terms of um, uh, participation, you know, since starting my practice here since. Uh, I finished residency. You know, I've seen the evolution of a lot of these payment systems and uh, um, and mandates through Medicare, and a lot of these were uh, primarily geared toward primary care. So a lot of the metrics that we're um, you know uh, 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 held to certain standards are really don't apply to specifically radiation oncology. Uh, there were a few oncology specific measures in the PQRS program that was a physician quality reporting system that we were able to participate in. Um, and some of those carried into the MIPS program, uh, which fell under a MACRA. Um, the issue with us is that a lot of uh, rural practices don't have the EHRs configured to submit measures through their um, uh, um, you know, Excel spreadsheets or through uh, uh, the portal. So we had to do so by claims. And CMS really limited the number of measures you could submit by claims. Um, the only one that was radiation oncology specific was topped out. That was the radiation dose limits to normal tissues. Um, so with the ROAPM, uh, there was some hope that, well, perhaps with a uh, well-designed ROAPM, we would actually have measures that were relevant to radiation oncology. Unfortunately, they just borrowed them from MIPS. Um, and so they pretty much were composed of, uh, you know, uh, a plan of care for pain, depression screening, um, and um, uh, there was one that was uh, not a MIPS measure, but was in, uh, imported as an NQF measure, radiation uh, treatment summary within 30 days. Um, and then there was an advanced care plan. You know, do we have that for, for patients? So really not too radiation oncology specific, expect, except for that one that, that was borrowed. Um, and so I imagine with Connie's experience with this payer, I don't think your payer required that you submit quality metrics um, uh, with your with your alternative payment model, I don't know if that was the case. No, not at all. And you know, in in you know, in the commercial insurance world, um, you know, quite truthfully, there's very little attention or interest given to quality metrics. Uh, right. You know, it, 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 there's you know, there's little knowledge of what to do with that information if it is collected. Mm -hmm. uh, what they are really interested in is in predicting costs and uh, rate setting for their. Um, you know, for their for their customers who are going to be paying their premiums, um, and so for them it was all about cost. How can we 
control costs, tamp down costs, and most importantly, predict costs in a future term. Um, you know, but for Medicare, the interest is very different. And in, in Medicare, um, you know, va- a value basis uh, where that part of the equation uh, implicitly and explicitly includes some consideration of quality uh, is very meaningful. And uh, and you're right, Joan. Um, you know, the quality measures that have been put forward for radiation oncology have been marginal at best in terms of their value, right? I mean, I, I can't imagine that, um, that there's going to be um, uh, a game-changing conclusion uh, from analyzing um, that reported data. Um, and one- all process measures. Uh, uh, correct. Yeah, none of them are outcome. No, no. And that actually- requires- an outcome measure for an advanced APM. So how did the ROA team get away with that? Right. And and an advanced APM under macro has some flexibility in um, its ability to um, select quality measures for a model. And it can appropriate for MIPS. Um, it can turn to the professional society in order to construct a quality measure. It can go through an alternative route in order to select such a thing. And can change these quality measures on a year-over-year basis through rulemaking. And so so what we have in front of us at present may be something very different three and five years from now. We don't know. And there's going to be some iteration over the next number of years as the ORO model launches and is reviewed and analyzed by Mathematica. And there's input uh, provided by stakeholders like some of the people on this call and others. Um, to select most appropriate quality measures, and um, and 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 what we have right now certainly not uh, a permanent state. Um, what I think we also liked about the opportunity of an APM is that um, it limits, or it could limit, the reporting of these measures in order to achieve a certain threshold of of performance score and and hopefully qualify for bonusing uh, vis-a-vis. Uh, what we have to do under MIPS. Um, but it's really, I think, about that ability to, that flexibility to be able to customize and, and choose and, and draft quality measures that are meaningful to, to this specific field of medicine. Right. And so the, uh, uh, you know, in, in addition to the, um, the, the burden of uh, submitting these measures, there's really no vendor or EHR specific mechanism to collect and submit this data seamlessly uh, as of yet. Um, so right now, the only way is to download uh, this Excel spreadsheet from the, um, the secure data portal, uh, manually enter the data and then upload it. And uh, for both the clinical data elements and the quality measures, what, what really is egregious is that the quality measures have to be reported on all patients getting radiation, not just Medicare patients. So that includes your private payers. And it begs the question, what jurisdiction does Medicare have over patients that aren't aren't even reimbursed through their system? That's a great question. It's actually a great set of questions, you know, and and maybe we could address what are our, um, um, our, our, our vendor providers doing our EHR vendor providers doing in order to help um, its set of customers meet uh, through their uh, information management systems, the ability to capture this data and then uh, report it 
in, in some facile way. And, um, you know, at least in my capacity in the company, I, I have the opportunity to talk to, you know, anyone who has anything to do with, um, with radiation oncology EHRs. And, uh, and we've had um, uh, a, a concentration of discussions over the last couple of months uh, about, um, um, about providing the modules and the updates to existing systems in the network uh, to be able to meet this data reporting requirement. And, um, and, and forgive me if I'm repeating things that others uh, already well know, is that um, the, the feedback has been, well, we're just going to wait for the final rule and see what's declared in terms of requirement. Uh, we are doing some scope work right now in terms of what we have to do in order to have our software engineers work feverishly until the end of the year in order to build the modules that we will then distribute uh, throughout our customer base. Uh, but they really haven't done very much. And they'll have about a couple of months to get systems updated or installed. Um, we do have a little bit of cushion uh, in that um, the reporting period uh, isn't immediate once the model launches, that there will be some number of months uh, for during which providers uh, can submit their clinical data elements and their quality reporting elements. Um, and so that doesn't necessarily have to start on January 1. Uh, but if the software is not, um, if, if the EHR systems are not updated um, soon after January 1, it unfortunately creates yet another burden on the participants in that they're going to have to work backwards to collect that data manually and, and then submit, it, um, which would be a waste of time and and, and and certainly money. And certainly one thing I've seen a lot whenever Medicare comes up with the mandate is that you all have all these vendors jumping in and seeing an opportunity to pass the cost onto the practices and the physicians. So yes, these vendors may build um, uh, you know, modules that will help uh, collect the data and submit it, but will they do so at a cost? You know, many of us already have service contracts with these vendors, uh, but many have been told just from hearsay saying that, yes, uh, we'll build something for you uh, for, you know, $100,000. And so when we're talking about cost savings, you know, we think, well, cost savings for who? Because you're also adding cost to those that are participating. Right, right. And um, and not to speak for anyone else, but I would imagine that um, you know, that, the, that the licensing agreements that exist between providers and, and EHR vendors allow for these updates that are not of a custom nature, specific only to the practice or to, 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 to one customer, uh, but, uh, but would be a service that would be provided at no additional cost uh, um, uh, you know, to, to the providers that are using these systems. Uh, I don't know that for a fact. Um, that's the expectation. And the way that I read our agreements, that's what I understand. Um, I'd be surprised if it were different and um, and very in an electus customer base in the US would be, I think, extremely upset if it were otherwise. Yeah, and, and I'll just say, we have hammered this point 
over and over again with with CMS because it's not just an an RO model issue. It permeated through MIPS. It permeated through, um, you know, health IT adoption uh, where these costs um, are essentially mandated by the government and passed on to, to physicians. And not only is there no kind of added payment to, to compensate, they grossly underestimate um, what they think the cost will be. I mean, if you look at the RO model rule, I think it's like a couple thousand dollars for practice for implementation, which is just so laughable. Um, it's not funny at all. Of course, it's, it's, it's awful. I know we heard from one health system that I think estimated the cost of participation in the model at well over a million dollars. And, and that's going to be the norm. And so, you know, going back to our winners and losers discussion, uh, the, the, um, the data we've talked about showing a, a majority of losers, that's best case scenario. We haven't accounted for those costs of implementation and participation that we know are going to be significant uh, among those um, uh, among that data. So the losers are going to be bigger losers and those few winners are going to be fortunate to, to break even. I, I wanted to jump in. I, I actually got to let Anna say something because I said, I said she's been turning her uh, mic on and off for a couple of minutes. I think she's been gearing up to say something. But I wanted to just since we're on this topic, I really wanted to just ask one question because, um, you know, I'm, I'm a quality person and there's been there's a long history of like public private partnerships that have actually been very successful and very beneficial for Americans. Right. So like this, probably the standout one that, that kind of a lot of people know about is the airline industry. Right. So after world war two, there was a great partnership between the government and private industry to kind of make airlines safer. World war one, world two, one of those, I don't know. Um, but basically that, that was very successful. Right. So it's one of the safest industries we have now. And it was really a true partnership. Has that ever been talked about? Like, I mean, is, is, I sort of feel like, um, you know, I know that you mentioned uh, oncology specific information systems, but like the big elephant in the room is like Epic and Cerner, right? They have a huge market share of like of EMRs that, that everyone uses. And, and as an aside, I think you might see people talking about how much money some of these companies are making, partly due to the policies that have been passed. Um, is there ever been discussion of like looping them in and kind of having them take on some of this burden? It, it's also a, an opportunity to improve quality, right? Because because you could build the IT to help us kind of learn about our patients and and kind of do the things we all want to do. Give them some skin in the game. So so is that like is that proposed and they just say no or is it is it like is it? How does it's that been happen? mentioned on some panels. I I don't know if it's been officially proposed, but yeah, I would love to see. Some, some model where you actually loop in the vendors and have them take on some accountability too and being successfully provide the tools necessary to meet the, the, the quality reporting. Yeah, and no, I was just um, gonna piggyback on the conversation here. It seems like one of the you know, biggest burdens, especially for smaller practices is you know, the quality metrics and without being tied to MIPS, you know, kind of non-specific post radiation oncology, just curious about you know, the group's opinion, you know, maybe what what would be kind of a path forward or like a solution that um you know that we could think of eventually of maybe collecting more relevant metrics um for radiation oncology join uh, maybe you have some thoughts on this yeah I, you know it shouldn't take 2 years to develop quality measures you know that's pretty much the timeline uh, it is if you want to propose new measures for radiation oncology and then once once you um uh, you know, go through the process, you know, it, it's uh, several uh, s- steps before they're actually approved. And many of these metrics are 
uh, stewarded by by various organizations. So they may not be consistent along the line. You know, so for example, like the pneumococcal vaccination measure and the influenza vaccination measure are stewarded by two different organizations. That's why they're all structured differently. Um, but there's a lot of measures we could meaningfully propose for radiation oncology. Um, but the, the barrier to entry to, to get CMS to accept them is, is, is pretty high. Um, so if we can overcome that, then we can actually develop some measures that are meaningful, something, some uh, many that, uh, that could be looked at as outcomes and, and really, truly be able to move the needle in terms of quality. Yeah, I'll, I'll just kind of add to that. And no one from Astro's uh, quality, clinical affairs and quality uh, division is on the line, but they put a lot of thought into guideline development, measure development. Um, and it's it's uh, what I've learned over the years is it's much easier said than done to actually develop a measure and to get consensus uh, around a measure. Um, you know, one thing that we have consistently proposed to the agency to solve this this quality problem with the RO model is to rely on what's already going on out there. And one thing that's already going on out there is accreditation. You know, and obviously Astro has the Apex program. We know there's other accreditation programs, but that could be a very much a, a one-stop shop that there's generally consensus around, you know, is is good standards for quality and at least represents a building block and one that's doable for for practices. Um, but that unfortunately has gotten nowhere, and we have the 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 terrible situation we're in today. You know, we 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 have quality metrics at MultiCare and for radiation oncology, uh, it's advanced care planning and smoking cessation. And so the thought was, well, why don't we do something radiation specific? And, you know, I'm, I'm here now and I get to be a part of that conversation. And we, we came up with multiple ideas. And one, one we've talked about in this podcast before is our, you know, doing peer review and quantifying that and measuring that. Um, and, you know, when we got into it to try to actually implement quality measures, it, it became really, really arduous and it involves like an epic build out and it involves a lot of ways to track it easily. And so next year we're going to do, I think, smoking cessation and breast cancer screening. And it's like not radiation oncology specific yet again. Um, and it's, you know, it's no one individual's fault. Like I, you know, I, I'm supportive of radiation oncology specific measures. My cancer center director is supportive of it, but it becomes so burdensome to do anything uh, rate, uh, quality specific to your specialty, the way Medicare has set up these programs, because they have to take care of the majority. And I understand that, but it, it becomes increasingly irrelevant if you're uh, a breast cancer radiation oncologist, like I am, and my quality measure is breast cancer screening. It's just, it's silly. Um, I think the other issue in terms of quality, right, aside from sort of these metrics we talked about is the fact that, again, if you look at the finances a little bit, right, the way to, quote, make money or not lose as much money under the model is to hyperfractionate, right, is to, to treat less. And, you know, in some ways there are benefits. We've looked at it for our community sort of outstanding uh, regional centers, which are not quite as rural as, as what Join describes, but they're still kind of rural, right? And we actually come out ahead over what our current reimbursement is because we are an efficient provider in terms of the fractions and so forth, right? But 
my concern about the quality component is, is that potentially a lot of practices in order to try to come out ahead will drive then patterns of care towards, you know, highly hypofractionated regimens, potentially in scenarios where the data doesn't really support it necessarily, right? And so I think in some ways to me, this is an interesting question for the group and for the society is, is how do we more globally ensure quality right, when it potentially may be financially driven the same way that quality now is financially driven in the opposite direction. Yeah, no, that's a really great point. I think, you know, really emphasizes the need for uh, guideline concordant care across the board and just making sure that we have a standard that we're all following in our practice, because as we've talked about, there is so much heterogeneity. Um, But I think, you know, ultimately, the most important thing is doing what's best for the patient and, you know, certainly treating a large number of fractions when it's not called for, you know, that's not quality, but also, you know, hypofractionating, you know, dangerously so, not so either. Um, so I guess just in the interest of time, I um, wanted to transition us to, you know, really the, the call to action. What can we do about this now? Um, and so I wanted to, uh, I guess, get the group's perspective, you know, maybe an overview of kind of efforts that um, you know, that the Astra is doing uh, to really kind of bring this into the into the forefront um, and, and kind of from that perspective, as well as from the individual perspective, you know, what can we do is, you know, writing to our representatives, uh, will that have impact? Um, and so I just wanted to open it up to the group. Yeah, um, I'm happy to start um, because we actually have some news. Um, you know, this is a very timely uh, podcast, I think, as, as folks hopefully know. We're in the midst of, of a Medicare payment crisis. We've been talking about the issues mostly on the RO model side, but of course, the, the fee schedule side um, is, is very serious. And so we've been um, waging a campaign to try and, and uh, fight back against these cuts, both on the fee schedule and on the RO model. And uh, just tonight, um, we secured uh, our second sign-on letter uh, that we've been asking ASTRO members to encourage their members of Congress to sign on. Uh, So tonight, 67 bipartisan members of the House of Representatives uh, signed a letter to CMS demanding changes in both the RO model and addressing the fee schedule cuts. So we're so grateful for our champions on Capitol Hill, so grateful for our stakeholder partners, so grateful for our members who have been uh, contacting uh, Congress to 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 help uh, help us fight. This obviously follows on a letter um, that should have been in the astrogram today from Senate champions as well. 18 bipartisan uh, senators led by our champions, Senator Stabenow, Senator Burr, uh, sent a very similar letter. And there's actually another letter forthcoming that's very focused uh, on the impact that uh, the fee schedule cuts in the RO model uh, will have on underserved populations. So that'll be coming later in the week. So altogether, we have more than 100 members of Congress weighing in uh, demanding changes from CMS. So, um, you know, I I often get asked this question, you know, is our advocacy effective? Well, this is illustration that it is. I actually had uh, Colin Whitney, an excellent member of of my team, uh, run some data today uh, to uh, look at how effective our grassroots advocacy was in in securing people who signed on. So uh, of those uh, uh, 104 signatures, 82% of signers were contacted by an ASTRO member through our grassroots um, uh, system. So that tells you when you send those emails, when you send, when you tweet, when you do, uh, when you make a phone call, if 
people still make phone calls anymore. Um, it has an effect. Um, and it makes me wonder, what if we had more people actually do it, uh, actually respond? Our, our numbers are pretty good, but they could be better. Uh, certainly not, uh, not anywhere near all the 7,000 uh, Astro members that we sent those alerts to filled it out. Um, only, only a little more than 1,000 did. What if what if we had more? What if everybody kind of engaged at that level? Think how powerful uh, we could be, particularly at a time now when we need it most. So it's a real opportunity uh, for our members to, um, to improve upon, I think, moving forward, uh, because we are small. We're really small. We're among the smallest medical specialties. The, the voices in D.C. are so big and so loud and so well-funded. I like to I like to talk about um the fact that we, we we do have a knack of punching above our weight class because we apply powerful stories and powerful data to, to support uh, our issues. Um, we really bring the patient voice uh, to bear into these discussions uh, and we work well with, with other stakeholders. Um, but the threats against us are, are serious um, and the competition in the ideas marketplace in DC is, is fierce and we need to be even louder. It's so encouraging to me. I just want to quickly say, because I was actually a little, um, it's a little, uh, I did the tweet and I sent, I did the thing that was like the form letter to my, um, to my uh, person who, who happens to actually be a nurse. Um, maybe it was a different letter, but it was to Corey Bush. Right. So, um, and, and so you get back a letter, right. That's a form letter. And it just feels like, okay, like, you know, these people must get a, a thousand of these every day. So to hear you say that is like super encouraging. And I, I'll just tell you directly that it really motivates me to do a lot more of this. Now, I was going to say, just as a former um, congressional staffer, you may get a form letter, but the member gets a list of the issues and how many um, constituents contacted them about the issue. And it definitely elevates the issue and it gets the member's attention. So you may be getting a form letter, but it's doing its job. Uh, uh, the, the only other thing I was going to add is, um, and, and I think that um, the extremely effective work that people like Dave and Ann and, and on our government relations side uh, goes for the most part um, unnoticed by our many, you know, our few thousands of members. Uh, but this small group of people uh, has been very impressive in its, uh, in its production over the last number of years, particularly the last short number of years. You know, you know radiation oncology is, you know, a rounding error, uh, you know, in, 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 in our country's you know, annual budget. Um, and we're able to secure nearly a quarter um, uh, of our members of Congress as signatories on these sign-on letters. That's, that's an incredibly impressive feat. And, um, and Dave is ambitious, and he wants to do more and better than that. And, and I completely share in that desire uh, to be an overachiever. But I think we have to step back for a moment and, and, and consider what a great job these people have done on our behalf. Um, you know, there's not enough attention that could be that could be uh, given to to their work. But all that said is, um, as we await the final rules to be released here shortly over the next few weeks, we anticipate there's going to be a ton of work between now and the end of the year to get to the finish line of this, both on the RO model side of uh, this overall project and and on the fee for service side of the project. And uh, it's been as 
busy and as complicated a year um, as I can remember. I've been doing this type of work for about 10 or 15 years. I don't remember any year like this. And we've had, you know, um, some real challenging uh, years um, um, over that period of time. Nothing like this, but um, but uh, we've done great work, I think. And, and I think we're going to see some success uh, at the end of it. Uh, but um, we encourage anyone out there listening who's a radiation oncologist and hasn't had an opportunity to weigh in and uh, and speak to his or her local representative or or senator to please do so. Dr. Luxus, you asked a question about how radiation oncologists can get involved. There's lots of different ways. I, I talked about kind of on the congressional and government relations side, but you know, we've been so fortunate to have Dr. Mance be a volunteer leader, Dr. Liu as well, um, and a whole host of others who serve on the kind of key advocacy committees in health policy and government relations. And they, they work so, so hard. Uh, everybody is just in such tremendous debt uh, to the work that they do, the dirty work, the work on coding that no one else necessarily wants to do, um, that, that they do and do well to the benefit of the of the specialty. And I want everybody to know that we need the next generation of, of Dr. Mance and Dr. Liu uh, and our other HPNGR leaders. We need folks to volunteer for committees. We need folks to serve, um, commit the time. And we know, I, I say that knowing how busy you all are at work, at home. Uh, it, is a, it is a time commitment, but it's so, so important to the, especially the field. The field was built on luminaries who did this in the past. Uh, we're so reliant on, on those who are doing it today. We need to identify who's going to do it uh, tomorrow because the, the specialty is at risk and it needs uh, folks who are willing to, to be creative, put in the time and, and do the work. A really important uh, point, Dave, and I think that you know, great avenue for um, you know, people in my generation, younger uh, radiation colleges to get involved is through um, Advocacy Day. Uh, as well as, you know, writing to representatives and, you know, really engaging um, with the conversation. And um, I think that that definitely can make an impact. You know, we're stronger and uh, we have, you know, a lot louder voice um, with, with more numbers. And it is really remarkable, um, you know, over 100 members of Congress, um, you know, really supporting our efforts. So uh, it's great to, you know, really inspire and I think to see that impact. I think yeah, the other thing I want... I would add is that it's important though to make sure that the message you know is at least somewhat consistent right because i think uh calling back for a rollback to fee-for-service unlimited is probably not realistic and i think there is in fact a lot of good potentially in the ROAPM model right both the way that 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 astro has originally um, structured it right and potentially the way it could be turned in the future and so i think we need to be mindful, though, too, that that the message that that we're advocating for is a reasonable message, right? And I think there's going to be a lot of work that will need to be done over the next 12 months, let's say, particularly by those who are randomized in to see what the actual impacts look like, right? So that the things that are truly onerous, painful, unfair, those we can then go back and say, hey, you know, there are certain things that work really well, and, and these, this is what they are. But in exchange, there are certain things that don't work well at all, and let's fix them. Gosh, guys uh, and girls, we've learned so much from today and from our prep session. And I really, you know, we all really want to thank you guys for taking time to do this. It's 
it's fantastic. And it's great to get under the hood a little bit because, you know, I hassle Astro all the time on social media and Dave and Anne are always willing to say, hey, just give me a call, clear this up. And I would encourage other members of Astro to do that, to engage with them because they want to learn and they want to teach. Um, and the relationship isn't perfect, but that's the only way it's going to get better. And I really appreciate this. Uh, I think the whole group does. Um, I know like we, we get in the habit of celebrating the holidays too early, but I, I wanted to just go out with this. What would be on your Christmas Christmas wish list of uh, what to add or subtract from our APM? Um, and I, I, I'll start. I would like uh, if we were selected in the ROAPM to be able to select the frequency and um, way we manage patients on treatment and who sees those patients. Um, there can be cost savings by having APPs do this or nurses do asymptomatic patients and you know not doing it every week for uh, asymptomatic patients to help streamline the function of the practice. Because when you're busy and you got 25 patients on that list for that week, um, and, you know, 15 of them have nothing going on yet. You still have to go and see them and chart. It's uh, not efficient. Um, and it's not necessarily improving patient care. So that would be on my wish list. It'd be more efficient for the patient too, right? They get nickel and dime all that stuff, parking costs and missing at work and all. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'll go, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, cause I'm thinking back to, uh, last Christmas. Um, and I think it was Christmas Eve when I got a email from a, a congressional staff at 1.30 in the morning saying the delay you asked for was in the final legislation. I can see the timing playing out very similarly uh, this year, just given the, the state of affairs on Capitol Hill and the struggle to, to move reconciliation, to move government spending bills, to address the uh, physician cuts we haven't even talked about uh, tonight beyond the cuts to, to radiation oncology. So it's it's setting up to a down to the wire, probably Christmas Eve situation with some big legislative package um and you know we're doing everything possible to get cms to reverse course on both of these payment cuts um but i wish i could tell you i was i was optimistic uh unfortunately been down this road too many times um and so i think eventually that means we're going to have a, a pretty firm legislative um uh request to address the discount factors to freeze payments uh, uh, for codes that are in the RO model uh, for the duration of the model. Uh, and I hope that's, that's, you know, I don't celebrate, but I hope that's under the tree uh, Christmas morning uh, 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 for us. No, I mean, I, I, I wish for the same as Dave. And if I can add uh, another wish um, to that is, um, you know, with the expectation that we're going to be successful, and, uh, and, and we'll get at least close to what we think is reasonable uh, for, for our participants uh, to, uh, uh, you know, to be able to treat patients and do it in the best and, and, and right way um, and receive you know, support through Medicare under this program to be able to do so. That in the long run, um, as it seems almost absolutely clear that this RO model is going to uh, take hold early next year and then gain momentum thereafter, that whatever it uh, 
uh, evolves into, that uh, it never gets subsumed by another field of medicine's model. We don't want to be subordinate to the medical oncologist or the surgical oncologist and have uh, what we do count as a quality measure, you know, and, uh, and to have someone else be the gatekeeper for access to our services. We want to be able to continue to see patients uh, upon natural patterns of referral uh, for our opinion about whether or not radiation therapy uh, would be of benefit for them and uh, not change what uh, has been over the last number of decades, a very successful clinical care model. Uh, we'd like to see that the same. I'll just say that I would uh, love to get a message saying that I don't need to log in to the administrative portal, the secure data portal, or the RO Connect, that CMS is going to collect the data about my practice themselves. Um, and that all I need to do is participate in the model. Just like a patient who participates in a clinical trial doesn't have to be the one entering the data on behalf of their principal investigator. Now, if, if CMS wants to do research, please collect the data and I will be a willing subject. I love that analogy. I'm going to jump in with mine because it's related to your, that's a, that is an incredible analogy, by the way, that is fantastic because, because it, it would be horrifying <laughs> if we ran trials that way. Um, so, so I, I would just, I'd, I'd actually piggyback on yours and say that my, my gift uh, would actually be, um, you know, kind of what I talked a little bit about before is that, you know, a meaningful um, public-private partnership in, 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 in actually software and IT, because I think that there's a real opportunity to leverage that to really do real quality improvement, not, not all this other stuff that we've kind of been talking about. Uh, we have so many quality issues, and I think that would be a real opportunity to fix it or start working on it. And uh, I'd love to see that done and also done in a, in a transparent way um, where, where we know kind of who's responsible for what and, and kind of who to look to uh, really to make those improvements. So that, that would be mine. Yeah, I'll second everything that everyone else has said. Um, you know, more candy canes, fewer switches. Um, you know, this, this payment model, if you could, you know, take out the discount factor um, that is is you know, going to be a significant payment cut if you could, you know, roll back some of the administrative burden and um, improve upon uh, some of the opportunities that the model presents as far as, you know, shifting radiation oncology from fee-for-service to value-based payment. Um, you know, you have something that, that could be of value not only to the to physicians, but also the patients they serve. So, um, you know, I'd, I'd like to see some pretty significant changes. Yeah, I think I would echo uh, that as well. And uh, what Kanye was saying, which is, I think, well, on a short-term side, you know, we'll have a location in an ROAPM and some locations not in ROAPM. And so uh, I'm struggling a little bit with how best to reconcile that. Um, but on the long-term side, it's really more, I think I'm a believer in the APM model in general, in that I feel like physicians ideally should be in charge of sort of the panel of patients and make decisions for the patients individually based on whatever that given patient need and potentially then accept sort of the capitated component of it, but it has to be done right so that it works for the patient, right? And I'm not sure that the current model does that. And so I think that would be my hope is to, to drive towards some model where it's reasonable to actually be able to do that. Yeah, and I, I just add that um, going back to our discussion about quality metrics would um, you know really hope that those could eventually move more towards you know what we're actually capturing the impact on radiation oncology patient outcomes. 
All right. Well, thank you all very much. I think we are, we, you've even given us a little extra time. We're kind of over what we booked. I, I really can't thank you enough because we, this has been a very long episode. There's a lot to talk about. You've, you've really shared a lot with us and, and I, uh, you know, I'll just echo kind of what, what, what Simmel said before is that this really did change kind of my perspective on what's important. It was great to hear that the work that, you know, even little things that we can do are impactful. Um, and, and I, and I hope that we can, you know, kind of all continue to encourage like kind of, you know, junior people to get on board and, and start doing this stuff and start improving our, our power kind of in, in, uh, with legislation. So, so thank you all again very much. Um, and, uh, I guess we'll say good night. <laughs>